I'm going to be reading again from the same passage. Isaac was reminding me this is the third week in a row that I've been preaching from the same passage. So we're almost finished with this passage. There are three accounts of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. First Corinthians, Ephesians, and Romans. Some of them are duplicates, but not all. Okay, it says here, uh, beginning with verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You know, our God is such a great and awesome God. And He gives many gifts to us. Uh, one of the greatest of all gifts is eternal life. And it is a gift, because it says in Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life. The gift. Now think about that. I say, I have a gift for you. Hand it to you. And I say, Phyllis, but I want you to do this and this and this. It's no longer a gift. Because it is something that is earned. From the very first to the last, salvation and eternal life, they're gifts, a gift of God. And there are no conditions except receiving. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave the power to become children of God, even to those that call upon his name. So all you have to do to receive eternal life is to receive Christ into your life. That is a decision. And then God also doesn't turn us loose at that point. He gives us spiritual gifts. What are we supposed to do with the spiritual gifts? The Bible says that we are to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And then just like salvation, we have to receive them and then begin to apply them in our lives and in our church. Because the whole goal of Christ is to build up his people for the church. And so we use our spiritual gifts in doing that. Let me say, in our church, you can exercise some spiritual gifts just by attending. But most of them you cannot. In order to be able to serve in any kind of leadership capacity, you must be a member of the church. And so, if you're not doing that, then you are limiting the way that God is able to use you in your life. We've already talked about the spiritual gifts before. There are four of them prophecy, serving, teaching, and giving. Today we're going to be looking at two more. The gift of leadership and uh, the gift of mercy. First of all, leadership. I looked this up in the dictionary to find out what leadership was. I'm going to be expounding on how to know what it is. And it says it is the ability to administrate, to organize. And some of the list actually included charisma in that. I will have to admit there are parts of leadership that I do not enjoy. I, I enjoy coming up with ideas and getting them started, but I really hate to follow up afterwards. Uh, what I like to do is to turn that over to somebody else, and then I go and start something 
when I was working at the prison, I had a chaplain, so he said, chaplain, I was a chaplain, he said, chaplain, let's slow down a little bit, there's starting too many things, we can't keep up with all that. Well, that's what my tendency is. And so I'm a little weak in some parts of the administration. I, I remember talking to the fellow one time, and he was trying to suggest that he believed in God, but he did not believe in organized religion. And I told him, well, come to my church because we are as far from an organized religion as you can find. <laughs> in the New Testament, there are several words to describe leadership. One of those is the bishop. Now, the word bishop means an overseer. Describe somebody that's able to see the big picture. And so the word bishop, I believe, is sometimes actually used for a pastor or other leader in the church. The word is the word episcopos. Think about that. The, the churches that follow a bishop-led organizational structure are the Episcopalians, uh, the Methodists, and several other groups. And what happens is they have a bishop that makes all the big decisions. They decide what pastor is going to go to one church. And from what I was reading, typically they will appoint a pastor for one year. Then they can extend that. But even uh, a few years ago, the average tenure for a Methodist pastor was only about two years. That's interesting because, from what I've read in church world, the most successful year for a pastor is his fifth year. So they may be leaving before they have a chance to learn to do their job. Uh, the second word that is used in the New Testament is an elder. <clears throat> the word there is presbyteros. You see, I begin to follow here. Our word Presbyterian comes from that. And it describes elders. Now, in the New Testament age, they were coming out of Judaism, and the Jews. Likewise, had elders. These were people, usually a little bit older, had wisdom, and were able to make wise decisions, had character. And so, in the early church, there were elders there. We have elders, of course, in our church. Uh, we are Presbyterian, and so from the congregation, people are ordained and elected as elders. And there are two types of elders. One of them would be the ruling elders. Paul said, uh, uh, let those elders that uh, serve well, that rule well, be given a double honor. I guess that's talking about the money. Our elders don't get nothing. <laughs> that's just the way it is. We don't pay our elders, but they're worthy of a double honor, so we're going to give them a double honor. <laughs> the second kind of elder is is called a teaching elder, and that's sort of been updated in recent years to uh, minister of the sacrament and the word. And so we have some ministers of sacrament and the word as well. But because we are ruled or governed by elders, every one of our elders speak, and we'll move back there, and discuss matters about administration, finances, other things. So if you look at it, the elder systems like representatives. We elect representatives that represent us in making decisions. The third form is what is called congregation. 
Congregational churches like the Baptist have a pastor, and they usually have deacons or some other offices, but most of the decisions are made by the entire congregation. This is the purest form of democracy. I'm not saying that that's the best, but that's what it is. Uh, so every month they meet together for a business meeting, and the entire congregation has to decide on any major decision for the day by the church. Regardless of what the structure is, from my reading, I found that uh, sometimes in the New Testament they seem to associate bishops and elders together in other positions. And regardless of the structure and how we identify them, uh, all of them need to be under uh, the, the concept of every man, every woman is a priest before God. Peter says, You are a holy priesthood. Because of that, we have a, an individual responsibility for our personal relationship with God. Certainly, your preaching and teaching and discipleship class and all of that helps. But ultimately, we are responsible because we are priests before God. As priests, we are also responsible for making sure that our church follows the dictates of our Lord. Because you see, with each one of our church members, we are under the Lordship of Christ. So whether we're bishop-led or elder-led or congregational-led, all the decisions need, need to be made in accordance with the plan and the will of God for us. In the New Testament, the word bishop is used 21, I mean, four times, and the word uh, 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 elder is used 21. So both of them are used in the New Testament. It's not clear exactly what those offices meant in the New Testament times. But regardless of being destructive, God is the head and follow the leadership of Jesus Christ. Now, with leadership in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, it warns again and again of toxic leadership. Toxic leadership. False prophets. And these are people, first of all, that are not servants, but seek to exercise their own authority. Now, Jesus was a prime example of servitude. He came into the world, he said, not to be served, but to serve others. And he said, those that would follow after him must be servants as well. You remember uh, James and John towards the end, just before Jesus was arrested, put to death. They said, Lord, can you be on the right and the left hand when we come to your glory? And I'm sure Jesus was really disappointed at that. He'd been trying to show them teach them about servitude, but even here at the end, they could not understand. Heard about one church. And those said about him. Man was a board, the board leader. And they said, he's the boss of this church. Whatever he wants has to be done. Everybody follows his leadership. Nobody is there to cross him. He's the one that makes the decisions. He has the authority. So even the pastor must submit to him because of his authority. 3 John, 3 John uh, uh, verse 9, it says, there was a man by the name of Diotrephes. 
the Archimedes. And he was the one with all authority. It's a terrible thing that the pastor exercises his authority in the wrong way. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And I was reading about Anabaptists. Anabaptists uh, began in uh, Germany, and in fact, Baptists actually have some of their roots there as well. But the Anabaptists have some interesting practices. If a person is rejected or voted against by two or three people, they cannot become a church leader. And if an individual has too much charisma, they're not going to be a leader. Now, I understand their thinking. They're trying to make sure that the leader is going to be a servant. But maybe they're going too far with that because God has given all of these spiritual gifts. Every one of them is to be used to build up his kingdom through the church. But it can be a toxic kind of leadership if the person cannot be a servant. And then secondly, toxic leadership can come when there is no character. Again, at the end of the Bible, it talks about the need for us to be honorable. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, 3, that he that would be a leader must be above reproach. That means not only how we act when we come to church for an hour or two, it means during the week we have to be people of character, people of honor. And brothers are looking at us and they ought to see a model for how they are to live their lives. So every one of us here that is any kind of a leader needs to be above reproach. Otherwise, it is a toxic kind of leadership. And then finally, there needs to be accountability. It's a toxic leader. It's not accountable to anybody. Now, I, I always want to be accountable to the church. And people in the church, I, I implore you, if I'm doing anything wrong or doing anything that is not in the spirit of Christ, come up to me and hold me accountable. We all need that. And don't be offended if somebody else comes to you because they're doing you a service. Accountability is needed in the church. Every one of us probably should have an accountability partner. So pray for you, but also tell you that you're not doing something that's right. I was, I'm not going to mention the name, but I, I was reading last week or so about the president of one very large Christian university. And it was a magazine article about him, the Mormon and they probably read the same article. But this individual was evidently not accountable to anybody. He's raised a huge amount of money, but according to the article, he was promoting members of his own family and those that were friends, and they were profiting because of the position that he had. Others were criticizing him because he had gotten really involved in Political process. It said that with no accountability for this individual, nobody on his board would stand up to him. Whatever he wanted was going to be done because of the authority, the power he had, without having to make him an answer or an account for it. You and I need to be accountable before God, but we also need to be accountable to each other. And so toxic leadership means that there is no real accountability. 
The second gift that we're going to be looking at this morning is the gift of mercy. And mercy can refer to a couple of different things. First of all, mercy can refer to compassion, but it can also refer to forgiveness. Uh, James says in uh, chapter 2, he says, If there's a brother or sister in need, and you say to them, Be full, be well, what good is that? And the answer is, This is no use at all. It's valueless to recognize that somebody has a need, and you say, Well, hope everything goes well for you. There was a certain farmer, his house called up. He lost everything in there. Beds, pots and pans, no food. He lost his farm. The only thing that he had left were four cows. And so the first neighbor came by and he looked around and said, Oh, this is a real shame. And before he left, he said, you know, Call me if you need anything. <laughs> but there were other neighbors that came soon after. And of course, they recognized what he needed. He needed everything. They came and they brought him a bed and some covers for the bed. They brought him pots and pans and foods and the necessities of the household. They even brought aimless cattle. They recognized that there was a need and they had compassion. I think I've told you before, it's mentioned several times in the Testament. It says, and Jesus has compassion upon them. Jesus recognized hurting people and whatever their need, whether it was for food or for spiritual nourishment or for healing, Jesus took care of that. That includes every need that we have. We, we live in Mexico right now. And you know, in body heat in this area, uh, the Mexicans here did better than they do in many other places. There's so many grain roads spending Canadian and American dollars. And that begins to circulate in the community. It helps provide jobs. And uh, those that are working in restaurants and other places, uh, they spend their money and it circulates again. So it really helps everybody out. But you know, there are villages not very far from here. Very The people there are destined. And we need to make sure that we look to see. If you're hungry, we need to feed them. If they need water, we need to provide that for them. If they're sick, we need to do all that we can to make them well again. We need to have the same kind of compassion that Jesus did. And you know what the result of all this is? As people see our compassion, it points in the direction of Christ. I've been told that uh, people in our community recognize one thing about our church. That is that we're trying to meet the needs of people around us. That's what we live for. That's what we exist for. We realize that Christ died for us. And He gave us so much that we need to be willing to give to others. I'm glad that we have that kind of a reputation. And I hope that that spreads. It actually helps to lead people to Christ because of what we're doing. During the Second World War, Italy managed to finally conquer Ethiopia. Now, there was a time of great persecution for evangelical Christians. Evangelicals were actually caught, put in prison. 
And in Ethiopia, they didn't give the prisoners any food. They were receiving any food. It had to be uh, all the people that brought it to them. But these Christians were doing very well. Uh, all their believers and their families brought in so much food that there was some left over, and they were given to giving to the other people that didn't have anything to eat. These other people were so impressed because they had never seen anything like that before. Some of them became believers because of the generosity, the giving, the compassion of those who were Christians. The other element of mercy is forgiveness. The greatest act of forgiveness that I know of took place when Jesus was captured. He was beaten. The crown of placed upon his head. He was whipped with a whip and taken to the hill called Golgotha. There they nailed him with nails in his hands and his feet. He was hung upon a cross to die. And while he was there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That would be a pretty tough thing to do. People putting him together, he's asking for the Father to forgive him. This carried over to the new believers. One of the first Christian martyrs, Stephen, deacon. And he was preaching, and people were so angry, they picked up rocks and they began to throw at him. And he said, Father, do not lay this charge against him. Y'all would forgive us. Remember, Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving debtor. There was a man, and he had a great debt to the king. And so one day he was called before the king. Uh, asked to pay it back, but he didn't have it. And he made, have mercy upon me. And the king had mercy and forgave all of his debt, the Bible says. But then that same man went out and he saw somebody else, another man, that owed him a small amount. And he said, give me what you owe me. And the man asked for mercy and he said, no, you're going to prison until the last debt is paid off. King found out that. He called the first man before him once again. He said, You owed me a great debt, and I gave you mercy. And he said, Somebody else owed you a very small debt, and you forced him into prison. So you're going to prison until the last debt is paid off. <laughs> Jesus said, That's what our Heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brother or your sister. Jesus talked about forgiveness a lot. The Lord's prayer is that forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he said, if you do not forgive others, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Listen, this is a crisis situation. If you are holding a grudge or anger in your heart at somebody else, and you have not forgiven them, then you're asking God not to forgive you. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a little while. The Bible says not to partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily. One unworthy way that we might do that is by being unwilling to forgive somebody. You may not know the name Kim Fush. But you probably have seen a picture of her 
if you have been alive in the last 50 or 60 years or more. In 1972, she was living in Vietnam. And her village was involved with napalm, a sticky, inflammable, destructive clothes. And so she caught on fire and she ripped off her clothes because they were all on fire. And she was terribly burned. You might have seen the picture of her running out of the village naked with her hands outstretched and agony on her face. That picture went around the world. Made people just realize how terrible war can be. Sometimes totally innocent suffer. Well, Kim was not a Christian at that point. And later on, she asked for asylum in Canada, and they granted that to her. She said she started looking for God, and she finally came across the Bible and began to read it. And Kim became a believer. She had to undergo a lot of pain and suffering. She had 17 surgeries. Then she had laser treatment to try to ease some of the pain. And even today, she's still in pain. But she said, God impressed upon her one day that she needed to forgive those that had done this terrible thing to her. In 1996, she met the commander that had ordered the bombing of a vision village. And she forgave him. How was she able to do that? It was because God had forgiven her. And she was willing to forgive others. Let me encourage you today before we have the Lord's Supper with your prayers. Pray God forgive me. Help me to forgive the unforgivable. Gracious God and Almighty Son, thank you once more for bringing us together. Thank you for kindness and calling us as your people. Thank you for the grace that we have and the salvation that is ours. Thank you, God, for taking care of us and for giving us what we need, what we eat, what we drink. Father, we pray right now that you will forgive us. Help us, God, to forgive all others that have offended us in some way. Jesus, name we pray.